0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt.
1: We are back after talking about a couple of theories last two weeks to talk about feminism and queer theory with nuclear issues.
0: Uh, Feminism and queer theory are super closely related when it comes to nuclear issues. So this will be a really fun um, in-depth conversation about how these theories relate to nuclear issues and, you know, hopefully dismantling the nuclear regime. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to say.
1: We can just start maybe by doing like a brief recap of feminism.
0: So at a broad level, feminist theory in international relations looks at the way um, that women are specifically like marginalized by policy and foreign policy and whatnot. Yeah. It's
1: ultimately this idea that men and women experience um, international politics differently.
0: Which makes a lot of sense, if you think about it. Makes a ton of sense, because we experience everyday life differently, so mm-hmm. why would we not experience you know, international politics differently? <laughs> Padfoot <laughs> agrees. He's like, yeah,
1: this is cool. So when feminist theory is brought into policymaking, it doesn't just mean the basics of saying, we've talked to marginalized voices, we have included women and other uh, marginalized communities in this, it's actually including them in the process and doing so to bring about gender equality, anti-racist principles, and moving things away from traditional masculine ideas like militarization, weaponization, and bringing things towards diplomacy and peace building.
0: So I'd say that feminist foreign policy is definitely very active in terms of it seeks to be like anti-sexist and mm-hmm. actively right gender inequalities rather just acknowledging that, oh, these inequalities exist. It's like, okay, well, how can I um, break down these structural disadvantages that um, women and um, occasionally like gender nonconforming people face rather than just like... This is a problem. This exists. It's really cool. Some countries have actually adopted, like, outwardly adopted a feminist foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I know Canada has. Sweden has. I think New Zealand? New Zealand. Maybe. I also believe Mexico has, too. I'm going to really? Google that. Yeah. Oh, Mexico. I'm intrigued. Feminist. I'm, like, pretty positive. Oh, you're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they have. <laughs> That's, uh given what I know
0: about Mexican politics, that is shocking. I know, but that's like a really exciting thing, right? Yeah. That it's And you know, I don't know about the nuts and bolts of feminist foreign policy in Mexico, but it, it might just be window dressing. Like, I mean, just like Canada and Switzerland mm-hmm. might be, but I think it's at least exciting that there's a recognition of this needs to be done. Um, And just saying that they have these feminist foreign policies, even if it's not as progressive or equitable as it should be, there's not to say that it couldn't get there.
1: Yeah. And I think that goes to the idea of justice's recognition. So this idea that, yes, we want to get better in the future. We want gender equality. We want these acknowledgments of base inequalities between women and men and any other gender. Um, But... It starts with recognition and then it moves from there. So start small,
0: go larger. I know. It'll definitely be an evolutionary process, but Mm -hmm. it's really exciting that this is happening in the first place. And I think it could be very powerful in the future for maybe we see like an anti-racist foreign policy or a decolonial foreign policy. Um, and just what that could mean for marginalized communities all over. It's almost the world. like someone, you
1: know, is writing a thesis on a decolonial foreign oh, policy. Yes. <laughs> it's we'll Bridget. see how that goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can't wait. Um, I'm writing my thesis on decolonizing U S counterterrorism policy in the Middle East. Bringing the conversation to nukes, there's a lot
1: that feminist theory has to say.
0: And this has been going for a very, very long time. Like feminist critiques of the nuclear regime in the United States has been going on for decades. Yes, and sort of.
1: And one of the things that's most base about it is talking about how the way that nukes are discussed, the way that nuclear weapons are produced is very much masculine coded. So if you think about the U.S.-Russia nuclear race, it all boils down to (laughs) dominance.
0: Domination, subordination. Mm -hmm.
1: And this idea that we are entitled to nukes, the belief in the sanctioned right of power in treaties, and this expectation, at least from the American side, that they should be the primary agenda setter in international security.
0: Also sort of along these lines of masculine themes of domination and subordination and whatnot. Um, There's a lot of critique around the language that is used when discussing nukes. And Carol Cohn has written pretty prolifically Mm -hmm. about this, about her entry into um, the foreign policy space and especially, like, nuclear issues. Um, And so, as Bridget was saying, one of the
1: things that's really important is language and the way that, um, in many cases this masculine dominated way of discussing nukes so with strength, aggression, of course nuclear weapons is a phallic symbol we'll just say it that's what it is <laughs> it's true. Um, it also by focusing on these masculine issues it marginalizes femi- feminine coded issues way of talking about things. So when we talk about oversight when we talk about bringing an end to nuclear war, these things are considered not important because they're not coded as masculine.
0: Mm-hmm. There's cone unpacks. A lot of the like deeply sexualized language when um, talking about nuclear weapons. Um, some pretty, some pretty like startling phrases. That when I first started reading about this, I was shocked that this is used in like a professional <laughs> discourse. But, um, erector launchers, thrust to weight ratios, soft laydowns, deep penetration, and this one really like blows my mind. Orgasmic whoops, like what? the fuck (laughs) this is i know this is used in like nuclear policy dialogues and it's like i mean it's so overtly sexualized um and like not even just sexual but the way that it still overtly places like women or like feminine qualities as like it's still very dominant but they also talk about nuclear warfare and things in very like dehumanizing Mm. ways so and i don't know exactly what this term refers to but it has to do with nuclear war and they talk about like christmas trees or something and it's
1: like bridget was saying like this feminist feminine discourse about human bodies vulnerabilities and lives it's completely left out of the equation and it's like it's naturalized right we're meant to think the only way to talk about nuclear weapons is through these sexual phrases and war and competition and dominance and and when you do that that's just not that's not true and it's making the world seem a certain way um and leaving out this huge part of seeing that and ignoring loss of human life
0: yeah it totally becomes this like abstract and dehumanizing way of talking about nuclear war you know you think about the phrase collateral damage which is used in like regular foreign policy a lot um but think about nuclear policy or they talk about low yield nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. which sounds like low risk No, no 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 the bombs that were used on hiroshima and nagasaki were considered low yield nuclear weapons and think about like all the millions of a people of people that were affected by that, like that, is just wild. How they, how these phrases and this terminology, um, just really shadows the the loss of human life mm-hmm. um, and the lives that are impacted by the use of nuclear weapons.
1: And a lot of a really interesting idea that feminist theory also brings up, and I thought this was really fascinating, is this gaslighting. Um, Ooh, and similar. that gas, I know it's like used in nuclear weapons because it feminizes anyone who tries to bring up like humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons and it does victim blaming. So this idea, like if you take away our toys of nuclear violence, we have to use them. And then it's your fault that we had to use them because you forced us into it.
0: I just don't even know what to say about that. Like I know. the fact that this is so embedded in American foreign policy. And that's something else that, um, I know code and other people write about that. You can try to not use this language, but you ultimately have to, but you ultimately have to, to be in this policy space. Um, or one, you're not taken seriously. Kind of like what you said about the nuclear gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Um, people think you're soft or weak or, um, whatever or you just can't even have a conversation about it. I know Cohn mentioned this in one of her articles. Like, you you literally just can't even have a conversation about these things unless you use the terminology. And so it's just sort of this, like, reinforcing, right like, n- feedback loop.
1: Yeah. No, it's... I mean, also, it's crazy, first of all. <laughs> but it just makes me think, you know, then how do you... How do you go about taking that emancipatory concepts from critical theory to bring to that forefront if you have to play ball, if you have to put yourself in the situation, use that language, because then you co-opt yourself and people are like, oh, for example, I see a woman using this language, it must be fine. I'm going to keep using this language and it gets worse and worse and worse. And all of these, as you were saying, like positive feedback loops, they, where are avenues of de-escalization and towards like negotiation?
0: Mm -hmm. I think that gets to something we've talked about before in terms of like you cannot go into the system expecting to change the system you won't like Mm -hmm. the only truly emancipatory path is a path of like revolution and radical politics and you can't like you can't enter this, stere- this foreign policy space and use this language and expect you're going to change the system from the inside. That's not how systems work. Mm-hmm. Systems are systems for a reason, and they morph people on the inside to fit the broader system. So change really has to come from the outside, and there's a lot of really cool like grassroots mm-hmm. movements that adopt like feminist and queer perspectives seeking to change the nuclear foreign policy structure.
1: Yeah, no, it brings me, this is a little bit of a departure, but it brings me to like a sociological perspective of thinking about how policies and processes become regimes of practice. So how things become institutionalized, essentially, and asking, because right when we're talking about how policies are created, we think like, oh, well, someone comes in and they make a policy and blah, la la blah. But actually, these processes that come into place take a really long time and they, they do certain things by being there. So they engender certain ways of knowledge production. So we're not thinking, oh, how do indigenous people see nuclear waste? How should we take that? We're like, no, we want to use very specific ways of modern Western science of dealing with that and certain ways of techniques. And like.
0: (laughs) Padfoot has a lot to say about this issue.
1: Beyond just, you know, what kinds of knowledge production and techniques are brought out by these processes. You all have to think about what identities, and that comes into queer theory. So when we have a process of, let's say nuclear security, how does nuclear security work in the U S? Well, it creates identities like non-nuclear states, nuclear states, rogue states, who's a threat, who is not a threat. And you have to really feminist theory in a way does force us to think about these things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we can bring in queer theory and identities here, but, it's hard because there's not an IR literature, let me say, which is the type of literature that you and I are most comfortable looking at. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole bunch.
0: Yeah. I think one of the most obvious ways that queer theory fits into this, kind of like what you're talking about um, with identities and binaries, how it's nuclear policy is talked about in this very sexualized way as we discussed, but it's a very heterosexual way Mm -hmm. so i'm talking about like penetration and like i can't believe i just said that on a podcast um all these like hyper uh, what am i trying to say it's like this heterosexual dance of like masculine domination or like masculine sexualization of women and so you see this very heterosexual way of thinking about um nuclear policy or in nuclear discourse that just further perpetuates Mm -hmm. heterosexism. Exactly.
1: And it codes things as good or bad, right? So rogue states tend to be states that have nuclear capacity or trying to build nuclear capacity. We code those as bad. But then there are certain nuclear states that we code as good, which just happen to be white European states. (laughs) Shocking.
0: (laughs) I'm aghast. I know.
1: So an aspect of queer theory, and this departs a little bit from what we've talked about is queer ecology Um, and take a step back. Ecology is the relations between organisms and the material surroundings and queer theory kind of turns that on its head. So it says, what are the relationalities? What are the socio-political aspects through which ecologies are made? And queer theory, rather than remaining with this very heterosexual, there are things that are alive, there are things that are dead, asks you to think about What, what, what is beyond that? You know, how can we say what, what has been contaminated that is also still alive? And that has a lot to do with nuclear waste. Um, We want to ask not just what the material inequalities of nukes are, but also the socio-political aspects through which nuclear weapons are made. And again, kind of taking a step back to queer theory as trying to break down these naturalized identities. Um, Within nature, there's pure nature, there's horrible waste, abject decomposition, death, etc. And so queer theory says, well, what's, what's alive in death? How can we rethink that? And there's really interesting research about how after any kind of nuclear destruction, any kind of problems, mushrooms are everywhere. So there's mushrooms all over the Fukushima nuclear reactor.
0: What? I know. I had no idea. I didn't
1: either. And I was like, oh.
0: (laughs) Honestly, this whole like breaking this binary of things are either alive or they're dead is very foreign to me. I'm just Mm -hmm. like, well, what do you mean? It's either alive or it's dead. But that's the (laughs) problem,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah. And it also asks you to reimagine life and death from the position of the exploited. So what does the earth look like? After a nuclear weapon has gone off. How has it changed beyond just saying that it's devastated? Like what's happening there? Right. I picture just this nuclear
0: wasteland, but it does create
1: things. It does. And if you think even about in Hiroshima, the way that shadows reflect how time has changed. Right? Say more. Okay. (laughs) So we think of time as very linear, right? We think of it as for humans going pretty slowly. But nuclear weapons have a very different concept of time, right? It's, first of all, very quick, but then the effects last for thousands of years. Okay. So, so that we have those two different timescales. And when a nuclear bomb goes off like it did in Hiroshima, it left shadows on the wall. So it's almost both explaining that, bam, it happened, and then also this, look at how this has changed over time. So it's two competing timescales.
0: Whoa. I know.
1: I'll give you the chapter it was great.
0: <laughs> Please you. And I love stuff like this because I don't know, the way my brain has been socialized, I have this and I think like a lot of people would hearing mm. this, they'd be like, mm, "You're getting you're taking this too far, you know?" But I think you have to kind of retrain yourself to be open to the the possibility that these binaries and the way we've been taught to think is not necessarily like truthful in a way Mm. like there's more there it's true
1: i mean it also gets me thinking about some of the so right after the chernobyl explosion there was this huge exodus they forced everyone to leave the region but there's still a lot of people that are living there who said you can't make me leave my home like (laughs) fuck you (laughs) Uh and they're they still have a life right they're still living even though we think of traditionally chernobyl we're like oh yes destroyed the red forest everything is dead but there are still people living there and most of them are women
0: (laughs) but that makes me think about like well what are the socioeconomic conditions and whatnot that are keeping women there and maybe it's just you know they have ties to their homeland and that's where they want to be but i just wonder if there's some other like sexist forces right patriarchal forces at work there it's very true I just, I love how, I think
1: what queer theory does really well is like you were saying, it just makes you realize how many of these natural beliefs we, naturalized beliefs that we have in the way that we think about the world. Like, I also am like, life and death is done. It's static. That's it.
0: Yeah, it's like, (laughs) I mean, it's either alive or it's dead. Yeah. But I don't know. This is just a really fascinating idea to play around with. Especially
1: in terms of nuclear issues, because the way that nuclear waste works, the way that nuclear weapons work, is that they change something very fundamental, like on a molecular level, obviously. (laughs) Um, And so, yes, many people die when nuclear explosions happen, when anything bad happens, but on a microorganism level things do come to life. Things do change in a way that we don't think about because we're political scientists, right? We're not ecologists.
0: This is just, honestly, all I'm picturing is, like, any of the Fallout video games where all these, like, (laughs) super mutants and, like, wild-looking creatures have Mm -hmm. emerged as a result of this nuclear devastation. And it's like, that's totally true. Well, I don't know. Super mutants aren't, like, roaming around Hiroshima. But... The There's idea. a lot of really
1: good horror movies on that, though.
0: I know. I want more on this, on, like, a queer breakdown of nuclear discourse and um, the effects of nuclear destruction. And So if you're a queer ecologist, or a
1: queer theorist in general, and interested in nuclear weapons,
0: please reach out to us. Please, we would love to hear your perspectives, hear what we're missing, Mm -hmm. um, what the field needs more development in. There's so much here that I know queer theory could unpack. Sorry. So this was just a very, very brief and quick introduction to the the things that feminist theory and queer theory bring to light when talking about nuclear politics and nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah. And... As always, our goal with these podcasts is to introduce you to new ideas. Because probably, if even if you're a nuclear scholar, you haven't really thought about these things before. And if you have any questions, or you want to contribute something, you want to be on the podcast. You uh, want to tell us what we got wrong. Exactly.
0: Slide into our DMs. We love it. We love a good DM slide. Yeah. At Disrupt RCP. Mm-hmm. Or you can email us at DisruptRCP at gmail.com.
1: We have a super awesome selection of guests for this nuclear season. So look forward to hearing from them and continued more discussions.
0: Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye.